Welcome to What the Farm Podcast. My name is Rob Shark. I'm a farmer from Illinois and host of the Shark Farmer Radio. And I'm the other co-host, Leslie Kelly, also known as High Heels and Canola Field, a farmer, a marketer, and right now an Ontarian. Okay. You're in Ontario? I am in Ontario. You travel a lot. Yeah, November seems to be a little bit busy. Okay, what are you doing up there? I am speaking about leadership practices for creating positive change. That sounds boring. And also, <laughs> you're in Ontario, so you're speaking a boot. Uh, a boot, yes. Yeah, I'm going you, to the firm. you, you got to get that right. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Rob. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Food and Farming Championship Award. Now, who gave you that? Yeah, Farm and Food Care Saskatchewan, but I wasn't able to actually be there to accept because I was in North Dakota. That is like true diva level there. You won an award, you don't even go. Yeah, I was very, very sad because I would have loved to have received it because it was announced or the banquet was right in uh, Saskatoon, so right in my home province. Did you know that you were going to get this? I did, just a few days ahead of time, so uh, I sent them a video thanking everyone for the award. I guess I can't quite blame you if they only let you know a few days ahead of time. Yeah, and I had to be away for an engagement, so I just couldn't make it work. See, you're traveling. You were in South Dakota. You can't keep track of where you're at half the time. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Anyway, that sincerely, congratulations. It's well-deserved. You continue to work your tail off for everybody else in agriculture. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. yeah. It did hurt a little bit to say, but we'll just move it, on. It sounded painful. It, it sounded heartfelt, but painful. Oh, okay. yeah. All right. So you were up there in Saskatchewan at the Women's in Saskatchewan thing. You were emceeing that, and you met a gal named Colleen Dick up there from Niverville, Manitoba. Yeah, well, I've known of Colleen for years because of all the amazing things that she's done. So I was so happy to actually meet her in person and hear her tell her story at this event. Now, it's a story that maybe you're somewhat familiar with? Uh, a little bit. She's a farmer and also a creator of a food company. And back in the day, myself and my family, we also created a snack food company. Yeah, I remember. You remember the very first time you interviewed on the Shark Farmer podcast, you talked about it. Oh, that was a long time ago. That was 17 years ago. <laughs> it kind of feels like it. <laughs> yeah. All right, Colleen Dick. Uh, welcome, Colleen. Thank you so much. Niverville, is that right? That is correct. That sounds like a Dr. Seuss village or something. Kind of feels like that's where I live, yes. <laughs> it's a great little town. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you wake up at Christmas morning and all the packages are gone, just gather everybody up in the center of town and start singing. You'll be amazed what happens. Okay, it's <laughs> on my calendar. Done. <laughs> <laughs> they still get their Christmas presents, right? Well, yeah. well don't spoil it, Leslie. Come on. <laughs> all right, Colleen. First of all, up there in Manitoba, you do live on a farm, correct? We have a grain farm here just south of Winnipeg. We farm near 15,000 acres. We're just right in the middle of the Red River Valley fighting with our corn right now. 
Uh, fighting with your corn, are you done harvest? No, we've got a few thousand acres still uh, standing. It's really wet for us up here. I'm not sure how it is for you guys in Saskatchewan, but we're fighting the mud and then it snows and then it rains and then it freezes. And there's just a lot of vom issues this year and low bushel weight. Oh, it's just, it's a bit of a gong show right now. So it's one of those years that we're just going to be really happy to see 2020 roll over on the calendar because we're a bit done with 2019, I'm afraid. <laughs> You're not alone at all. Yeah. Now, you say 15,000 acres, and I tell you, down here in the ice states, jaws drop. But, you know, up there visiting Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and there, I mean, that is not out of the norm to have a farm that big, correct? There are some big acreages up here for sure, yeah. It's not uncommon. I've started to do a lot of speaking about acre shame in the last year. I don't know how it is in the States, but there's so many beautiful things about farming. But I think one of the more complicated social issues is this, how many acres do you farm type of question? And then the propensity to be pigeonholed based on that number. And so I've started to kind of unpack it a bit and I did this on stage at the women's conference that I spoke at in Saskatchewan because people will often ask, why do you feel like you have to say that number? And I spent years hiding that number and we would do speaking engagements or I would be out in public or just at conferences. And when people would find out that I hid the number, they would call me out and as they should and be like, well, why did you hide it? Are you inferring that there's something that I should be ashamed of because of my acreage? And of course, that was not our intention because we're used to getting a bit of guff for it. So then I kind of flipped it on its head and said, well, I'm just going to say what it is because that's my truth. And I feel like it's more honoring to an audience when they know what your story is and then they can have the ability to ask the most appropriate, relevant questions. If you're withholding information, you're not really sparking an honest, good conversation. So it seems to be like whether I mention it or whether I don't mention it, there's this kind of level of shame attached to it depending on the person you're talking to. So I've really started to unpack it and try and just strip away that idea that any one type of farming or scale of operation is better than another. We have to hold hands in egg, not point fingers, as we all know. So it's sensitive. I get criticized either way. So I would be really curious what you guys think about that too and what your experience is because I'm kind of at a loss of how to approach it some days. Damn it, Colleen. Now we're going to go down a rabbit trail. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. We if, could, we could, we could it was an innocent question, but yes, you've, you've struck a nerve with me too. The acreage. When you ask a farmer an acreage, I've joked before, it's like asking a lady what her weight is. And for people outside of agriculture, they just, they don't get it. But yes, there is a shame in both directions. Oh, you've got 15,000 yeah. acres, you're some BTO, you're, you think you're above everybody else, or oh, you're 500 acres, you're just some hobby farmer, you don't actually count, you shouldn't even call yourself a farmer. It goes to the whole spectrum. Exactly. And mm -hmm. what we don't understand is if you compare Manitoba to Illinois, there's no comparison. 15,000 acres in Illinois is a massive farm. It's, you know, like one of the biggest. 15,000 mm -hmm. in Manitoba, it's just how you guys are laid out. You guys farm in sections. Mm -hmm. You very rarely find a landowner in the I-States that owns an entire section. It's just the way it is. 
That's right. a very, very good point on how it is shamed. I don't know. What's it like up in Saskatchewan, Leslie? Well, similar to Manitoba, but I have been told when you're introducing yourself or talking about your farm to not bring up the acre size because it can come across as bragging. But I like how Colleen frames it as it gives it more context into your experience, your background, your story. And I also think it depends how you say it. That can come across mm-hmm. as bragging or the other <laughs> side. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you, well the, how you say it, like the way that Colleen says it, it's part of her story. But, you know, you've been in the conversations where it's, you know, it's the BTO type of conversation. Yes. And for people not familiar with ag, BTO is what we say, big time operator. And it's generally a very negative term. It's generally someone that is what we would not think of as the conventional farmer that talks to his neighbors and does all that stuff. So when you say BTO and ag, it's generally a dig. Would you agree, Colleen? Yeah, completely. It's like a faceless corporation idea transferred over to farming. Yeah, exactly. And your heart comes out when you start telling your story. Hopefully, I choose to believe that people are giving me the benefit of the doubt in every room that I walk into because it's much happier to live in that space. And it allows me just to keep a positive mindset. I know that's not always true. I just hope that when I tell my story, like part of the relevance of it is that when we were 22, we were taking over a 7,000 acre grain farm. That's a daunting like problem to be staring there looking at and knowing you have to buy out all these family members and all the succession planning, or if you're lucky, there was succession planning. It tells the story in a different way. There's a lot more problems with taking over that scale. And so I've just decided not to be ashamed of what it is. And Hopefully we're good neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's like sometimes when you get to a level, people are almost ashamed to admit it. I've interviewed, I can't tell you how many farmers. There has been 50,000 acre farmers that go completely bankrupt. There is people that are on a half acre that are making a really good living. So it really doesn't matter. It's your operation. It's where you're from. Because agriculture in Illinois is completely different than agriculture in Saskatchewan. Totally. Like, I had a few comments. Well, you might as well tell me what's in your bank account. And I'm like, oh, you do not want to know what's not in my bank account. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you cannot do the math that easily. My father-in-law, when he was alive, used to paint all his grain trucks the same color. Because the feed mill was right across from the chicken chef. I don't know if you guys have chicken chefs down in Illinois, but it's a coffee shop. Oh, it's a restaurant. (laughs) It's a restaurant. The quintessential small town coffee shop. And it's right across from the elevator. So there'd be guys sitting there counting the loads going in, thinking they could do the math. And my father-in-law got so frustrated, he just painted everything the same color to make it a little more difficult. (laughs) But he was shamed by it. And I, as a young woman watching this and knowing the backstory on the man who was the most humble, giving, giving to a fault type of character, I thought, wow, there's a problem here. I think we should talk about it. I think we should just quit hiding in corners and whispering about it and just put it out there and, once we stop holding up the measuring stick to ourselves is the same moment we stop judging others. Maybe it's we're so busy comparing ourselves to everyone else 
my dad used to call it navel gazing. He's like, quit navel gazing. <laughs> <laughs> navel gazing. Obsessed with yourself and how you're measuring up. <laughs> Doesn't make for a really happy person. <laughs> the acre thing, the navel gazing, is how we measure success. But I hope mm-hmm. that in the future we have more parameters that we look to that, you know, what we deem successful. Absolutely. And then you can talk about mental health in that same vein as well. Mm-hmm. The stress that's caused because of the belief that you're not doing something right because you're not achieving a certain number, which is the most shallow of measurements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't take into account your quality of life and your happiness and your joy and are you being kind to your kids and your wife and do you have friends? I see in this area, there's a lot of guys and women that just, they don't have hobbies anymore. Everyone's got their nose to the grindstone and the sense of community that going out in public and interacting and having those moments in your community are so valuable and cohesive. I kind of came face-to-face with this when I went on a trip to Africa with the Canadian Food Grains Bank early in March and lived with a Kenyan farmer. It was part of a project to have a Canadian farmer live and work alongside a Kenyan farmer. And she had one and a half acres. While I saw a lot of things in the community and in her life that were really sad, I came back almost jealous because of the community. We were dealing with kind of celebrating her Um, embodying some conservation agriculture techniques and how she had come from having children that were malnourished to having a thriving family, all because she got more yield out of this one and a half acres and what a difference that made. But what I did notice in that community was something I was kind of jealous of. And I was like, wow, the time these people give each other is very different from what we do here. And we tend to live in silos, whereas there you can't. I'm not saying anything was perfect. Obviously, there's a major issue in that community and there's, there's a lot of hunger and things that need to be addressed. But it was really interesting to me what I came away learning and being really envious of in a, in a good way from that experience. Yeah, I, I love how this has gone. Eventually, we'll get to protein bars, but but not quite yet. <laughs> yeah, someday. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like a lot of farmers kind of started up and then yes you get in that mode things are going good i gotta grow 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 because i've got to be competitive in a neighborhood i've got to do this then you get big enough and then you start looking at what you're doing and you're like all right this field over here just it's not making money and then you start to justify it by saying well the other fields are kind of covering it so i'm making money overall but yeah so it is that drive to get bigger that drive to fit in that can sometimes mm-hmm. make you rent ground or do things that just doesn't make money just because you feel like you need to be that big. Interesting concept. 100%. I wish I had comparisons outside of agriculture so people could get that. I don't think I'm alone in that experience. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Based on that, the, you know, the drive to grow, because it does, you know, work with your numbers, or then you get to a point where a certain ground doesn't make sense. You know, from what Colleen said, the shame that comes with the sharing your acreage. How do we get over that? Or what helps? Honestly, I think you have to be willing 
to put yourself out there. I know best practice would be don't say it so you don't offend. And I think another problem in our culture, oh, I don't want to get in trouble, but everyone's offended by everything. Everything. And I think the more that you don't let people be different and you don't allow it, the more we aren't allowed to acknowledge all the differences, the more prejudice it actually is. The harder it is for our culture to grow in acceptance because no one's allowed to be different anymore. And you're not allowed to point it out and you're not allowed to talk about it. And even if it's blaringly, glaringly obvious, it's is actually less tolerant. I feel like we're creating a less tolerant society by not having the hard conversations out loud. And everyone is so oversensitive and thinking, oh, generalizations are going to do this and that. And But meanwhile, we can't point out the obvious either because it seems to be so offensive. And that's politics, that's you name it. There's all kinds of issues you can relate this to. But I think it's having the conversations, to be honest, and not being scared to have the conversations and not being defensive about your position and seeking to find that common ground. Actually, with my energy bars, I have this protein bar company that we have on the farm. We run it right from the farm. GMO is a big issue. I go to trade shows all the time and people are asking, well, is it non-GMO? Is it non-GMO? And I truly believe my package must be proof of what I believe. There is a lot of people and a lot of marketers that completely disagree with me and they put on their package whatever the consumer wants to see. And for better or worse, I just can't do it because I don't truly believe there is anything wrong with GMO. And I don't think people understand it. It's akin to fear-mongering in my head. If I am putting it on my label, inferring that there's some reason why this is better or why the other is harmful. And I just refuse to do it. And it keeps me off the shelves of certain large chain retailers. It makes people angry at trade shows. I've had a lot of conversations start because of this, a lot of really great conversations, but a lot of conversations that are hard to be in because people are really angry. Food has become like religion. It's that sensitive now. What I've really tried to do with these tough conversations is bring it down to a level where what do we have in common? Oh, you love your family. You care about your family. That's why you're so angry because you want to protect them. Wow, I get that. I also love my family and want to protect them and will also not do anything to harm them. So look at this amazing quality we both have in common. Let's acknowledge that and then have the conversation instead of doing it the opposite way. That's how I'm approaching the hard subjects, whether it's acreage, whether it's GMOs, whether it's Oh, you're an organic farmer. You're not, you're not, what does natural even mean anymore? Nobody seems to know. Um, I think when you start with that commonality and then build on it, the conversations get a lot more intelligent and less emotional. Very, very well said. To give a little background on it, that you are creating a protein bar, correct? Yes. So we have a facility right on our farmyard. We renovated an old shop. The guys on the farm weren't totally happy with me because I was taking up storage space. But Y'all, you're that I, uh, wife. <laughs> I'm that wife. I'm like, I'm just going to take this building. You don't need it, do you? <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
And I'm going to borrow the forklift every so often, too. (laughs) (laughs) So we run the business right on the farm, and just a value-added thing. It started out, I was doing triathlons, and I was eating energy bars, and I wasn't really enjoying what I was finding on the market. And I thought, we grow some of the best ingredients in the world right here in our backyard. Why don't I make something with them? And and boy, did I not know what I was getting into. It is a hard market. <laughs> but wow, I think ignorance was definitely bliss in my instance. It's been a hard slug. I've learned some lessons, some really hard lessons, but I'm still kicking. And I have a very loyal following of people that appreciate that they can trust my label and they know it's it's what I believe is what I put into my company and into my messaging and really careful as a food producer now, I have a whole new appreciation for the amount of food fear that's promoted um, through marketing companies. And as egg producers, I think we have to be very hyper aware that this is out there. Loud minority is driving policy and we have to be loud and proud about what we produce and why we do it the way we do it. And I'm really passionate about that because if we don't tell our story, someone else is going to tell it for us. And we do not want that in egg or in food production. And then you take it down to the consumer level and they're finding that there's a food stress that is beginning to be a phenomenon among people, especially kids, because they're watching everyone freak out about what they're eating and being really stressed out about, oh, am I on this diet? Am I avoiding this? Am I getting enough of this? And they've actually proven that when you eat in a state of anxiety, it doesn't actually matter what you're eating. You will have an inflammatory response. So it matters what you're eating, but you will have an inflammatory response, whether you are eating the grilled chicken with the broccoli or the burger. If you're stressed out about what you're eating, you're going to have the response nonetheless. And that's scary and sad and something we actually, as food producers and growers and food companies and marketers, we have to take that on our shoulders. We have to take responsibility for that and govern it carefully. Yeah, I'm just all about having the awkward conversations, apparently. But I think it's important. I love awkward conversations, and I appreciate (laughs) your views and your stance. Awkward conversations are the most enriching because you get from the uncomfortable to the comfortable, and the things you learn about someone through that process, they are the best. And I love your stance and your positioning on the food labeling because you are in the minority, yeah. And my wonder about is it's called the GORP bar. Mm-hmm. What does GORP stand for? It is a backpacker acronym from the 1960s. It stands for good old raisins and peanuts. When I first came across the word, I tried to go to the trademark office. And I'm like, okay, this is the name of my company. I'm going to trademark it. And they're like, oh, no, you can't trademark that. That term belongs to the people. And I'm like, oh, I love it. It belongs to the people even better. So I called my company the Great Gorp Project, and I trademarked that, and Gorp belongs to the people, and everyone kind of criticized me at first. They're like, someone else is going to take it, and you can't protect it, and all of this. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay. I'm not worried about it. I love that the word belongs to the people. It reminds me that my responsibility is to them first. And I hold it really lightly, and I take it really seriously. When did you start this? I came up with the recipe like 13 years ago. 
I've been on the shelf in Canada for seven years. It took a long time to do all the shelf life testing because I filled it with hemp and flax and all the good stuff, which apparently is the most volatile stuff. I learned a lot about micro microbiology while we were watching weird things grow under the microscope. It's like, oh, all those good fats and the hemp and the flax turn rancid and you have to get your proportions right. So we did a lot of shelf life testing and I just wanted to fill the bar with enough functional ingredients in functional doses. I just didn't want to sprinkle in the flax and say, oh, look, I've got flax on my label. I wanted it to be a decent amount. So it was tricky to get there, but we spent years and years in in shelf life testing and finally got seven and a half month shelf life, which by industry standards is really low. But I'm choosing to believe consumers don't want to eat things that are over two years old. So we have to be a little more quick on our feet, ship really quickly and make in small batches and make continuously. And we've just found ways around it. And the amount of consumer trust that we seem to have and the appreciation for it is there. So I'm going to keep slogging away and we're excited. We're trying to get into the States. We'll see what happens. We've been talking to a few retailers down there, but I'm coming up against some barriers because of my stance, but that's okay. I think I'll get through it and maybe I go direct to consumer. Who knows? You ever heard of that Walmart? You should get in there. (laughs) I haven't heard about them. You might have to send me an email later. That's maybe an American (laughs) thing. Yeah. (laughs) So this isn't or hasn't been an overnight success. Like you've had the grind for 13 years and you are selling your bar across Canada. I think you said at the conference over a thousand stores. So yeah. you put so much hard work and effort, blood, sweat, and tears, lots of love into this. Has there ever been a time where you thought that you wanted to give up? Oh, on the daily, honestly. It's hard. Every time I think I'm going to pull ahead in a substantial way where I'll actually feel a little bit secure, something happens, or I make some type of blunder, or I... I didn't read the contract the way I should have with some of these bigger companies that I've learned some some really harsh lessons. My own fault, of course. My dad used to say the fish stinks from the head down. So every time you have a problem, you have to look in the mirror and realize it's all you. So I've made some big mistakes. <laughs> that was his deathbed advice to me, by the way. I'm like, hey, dad, give me the goods here. Like, you don't have a lot of time left. And he's like, well, Colleen... I was in the middle of launching my company, and he's like, the fish stinks from the head down. That's all you have to remember. It's always your fault. I'm like, oh, great. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) But it's true. So I've fumbled along, and we've had some great successes, but we've also had some massive failures. And I just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Honestly, the customer testimonials is gas in my tank. I keep going for them, and... Some days I really want to pack it in, but at the same time, I don't know if it's perseverance or stubbornness or something worse, but I seem to keep going. So we'll see. It's hard. I always threaten I'm going to get a t-shirt made that says doing it afraid since 1977. Like I'm biting my nails a lot of days. I don't like to pretend anything's been easier. I've accomplished (laughs) anything special because I know there's a lot of people out there doing the same thing and doing a much better job of it than me, but I've got what I've got and this is how I'm forging forward and I'm excited. I'm a creative person. I'm always coming up with new ideas and I love business and I love marketing. I really hope I can make this work. 
they say 90% of food companies fail in the first five years. So I made it past the five-year mark. So I'm like, (laughs) wow, okay, I must be doing something right. Let's go back to the labeling. So Mm -hmm. is there GMO ingredients in your bars? There is not. Okay, so why not just slap a label on there to make uh, people happy? Because I have to sleep at night. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, I I know. Explain that a little bit, though, because, yes, it's so easy to say, all right, I'm going to sell X amount of bars more than this by simply putting the label on there. And I think even though as annoyed as farmers and people in ag are, they get it why food companies do that. I mean, the frustration is probably more on the people that don't understand it. But here you are in a position where you could sell more, you could be more profitable by putting on this label. Can you expand Mm -hmm. further on why you wouldn't be able to sleep at night if you did? I guess it's just, it's a social responsibility thing. In my mind, it's not an allergen. You know what I mean? It's not saying, oh, there's no gluten in here. I'm not saying gluten's bad. I'm just acknowledging that there's a lot of people that can't have it and it bothers them. And you're doing the customer a service by telling them, oh, you're okay to eat this or you're not okay to eat this. It's an individual thing. GMOs is a whole different conversation. It's a whole different monster. And I think there's a lot of unintentional consequences to demonizing something. There just is. And I know I could sell more. I know for a fact there's giant retailers that would take me tomorrow if I would do it. How do I justify that in my heart if I see the science and if I do ever believe that there is something genuinely wrong and it is going to hurt people? I will change my tune and I will act accordingly. But I just have to stick to my guns on this one because I don't want to propensiate falsehoods. It's hard enough for people to understand a food label. I don't want to add to it. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to add to the confusion. And I can't have these conversations if I give in to that. I wouldn't be able to honestly live with myself. So who knows? Maybe I'm being foolish. I've been accused of worse. But for me and the way my heart feels right now about the situation, I I wouldn't feel right about it. No, I don't think you're being foolish at all. No, I mean, not one bit. I mean, I asked the question because... I wanted people to understand from a farmer's point of view, your thought process. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Generally, Leslie, (laughs) Leslie has the tough questions generally. So do you think you have this position on labeling where you are in the minority, you're speaking from your heart. Do you think that is because you are a farmer and you grow both? non-GMO crops and GMO crops, and you see there is no difference between the two? 100%. Mm -hmm. It's because I'm in the industry that I feel it and see it. I feel really lucky to be an egg. You're a steward of the land, and it's maybe romantic sounding, and it's in my heart. It's in my history. It's a family business. Both my grandparents were farmers. I tried to run away from farming my whole life. My parents raised me in Toronto. They tried to get away from farming, too. (laughs) And they moved back here when I was going into junior high. And I'm like, first thing I'm going to do is move away when I'm 18, which I did. (laughs) And I'm not going to marry a farmer. And I'm not going to marry a Mennonite. And I did both. And I'm so grateful I did. 
it's a beautiful occupation. It's a beautiful lifestyle. It's hard. It's gritty. And, and it's important. And I think in ag, we've done a great job innovating, not the best job communicating all the time. And that is changing. And there's podcasts like this, and there's some really great voices in the industry speaking up for us and speaking up for food. And that's great, but we need to keep pushing the envelope. We have to keep pushing and getting louder. Very cool. I'm having a tough time following that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we'll switch gears just a little bit because we're getting short on time. How hard is it to get in a grocery store? I've heard horror stories. Of course, I'm from Illinois, so you generally have to pay someone off to get in there. But to get <laughs> on a good shelf where people can actually see it and they don't have to be on the ground or have to be seven foot tall, how hard is it to get in these stores? It is expensive. The U.S. doesn't have quite the same structure, but in Canada, there's shelf fees that can be upwards of $100,000. Just for the pleasure of doing business with some of these big retailers, you have to pay out that amount, and that gets you a spot on the shelf. You're buying the shelf space. Oh, it is stressful. It's expensive. There's a lot of smaller retailers that don't demand those types of fees, and I made some big mistakes with some of the big ones. I kind of backed away and I'm honestly leaning to online sales right now and almost pulling out of retail entirely, except for the independent health food stores that are actually willing to tell your story and feel more of a personal connection to the brand. I think to have a voice like mine in the mass retail market is really tough. I took some big, big risks that did not pay off for me. So I've kind of backtracked a bit and I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. this might be more of a direct to market. I'm going to ramp up the website. I'm going to concentrate way more on selling off the website direct to customer, having those conversations because it's just more about than selling a product. It's about more than moving bars. I feel like the voice and the product would do a lot better in smaller scale. So that's what I'm kind of focusing on right now getting on the shelf it's really hard there's a lot of gatekeepers uh, buyers are notoriously protected and busy and it's really hard to get an ear so i'm going to approach it differently there's a company like general mills do they have to pay those fees mm -hmm. or is it for people trying to break into the grocery stores you know i've heard both i've heard it's sort of almost like a a revenue stream for a lot of these big companies. They'll cycle through the small companies. Just pay us your hundred grand. Okay, you're out. Pay us your hundred grand. Okay, you're out. It's not a very noble way of doing business, but that happens. And many brokers and such have told me that the big companies they do play some big games too because there's big competition. I know a soup company that Campbell's came in and were like, okay, we're going to pull our entire line if you don't take this soup off your shelf. So there's different games played in grocery. It's really dog eat dog is what I've been finding out. And I can't speak for what the big companies pay because I have no idea, but I know there's a lot of bullying and there's a lot of protectionist behavior involved. That doesn't really serve the customer in the end. No. It serves them. Yeah. 
the believe the best in everybody stance has uh, bit me a little bit sometimes, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. I'm better for it. And now I can talk about it and figure out what my direction really should be. The grocery world is daunting and I wish there was a, a 101 grocery book out there. So if someone who wants to start a snack food company, a protein bar or something along the lines of food, what would mm-hmm. you tell them to do? I would say, be careful, read every word on the contract and do the math on what happens if it doesn't work. That was one of my biggest faults going in. It's just, I would assume it was going to work. <laughs> that is just my attitude and do the math. It's painful to retract from some of those big deals. And they have what's called a guaranteed sale, which means they can order pallets and pallets from you and then return it all after it's expired. You don't even know if it made it out onto the shelf. It could sit in a warehouse for all you know. Mm. It's really hard to swallow when it happens. And it's happened a few times to me and it's been tough. I went in with a bit of a blind face a lot of the time thinking it was just going to work because it's working in all these little stores. I never get returned and these medium chains are doing well and I never get returned. It should be fine. And yeah, I made some really big errors in that department. So I would say be careful. And when you're small, do not go into guaranteed sales situations unless you've got deep pockets to absorb it. It's hard. Don't get the stars in your eyes too quick. The little guys will uh, be a lot more profitable for you. And then when you get the big pockets, you can go after the big ones. And that's hard when you're a risk taker. And when you're a go-getter, you're like, okay, I'm going to take on the big guys. This is going to be great. Not always. I've really learned the value of the smaller health food stores, the smaller grocery chains. They treat you better. They don't pull as many punches. They don't daze and confuse you with all their coding and things that don't make any sense. And you just have no way of understanding because it's their language. There's not always an interpreter. And that's what I liken it to sometimes is just doing business with someone that's speaking a different language. Yeah, you got to be on your toes. Not to scare anyone. Go for it. Go out and do the thing. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, but go right careful. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but just be careful and don't do the guaranteed sales until you have the pockets to back it. You can learn from my mistakes. <laughs> so what is next for GORP? Well, the last year I've spent a lot of time looking at the export market because I became a little disenchanted with all the shelf fees that I was looking at here in Canada. I actually am about to receive an order. It hasn't happened yet from a big outfit in France with uh, 3,500 locations. They're doing a Canadian breakfast program. And apparently the order came in to the broker, but I have not seen it. And I don't want to count my chickens before they've hatched, but I've been working on figuring out this export thing for a long time. So I'm hoping I'll be shipping a container load over to France early in the new year and really just kind of dipping my toes in the Europe market a little and see what happens. You would think that would be the last place that would want a product with a non-GMO label or without a label. You would think that. I have not been asked one question about it yet. I I am shocked, but they have the labeling, everything's approved, nothing has been said. So I'm just Hmm. going with that. 
I was shocked too. I thought there's no way they're going to accept me. And they apparently loved the product and, and want it on their shelves. So I'm excited for that. We've got really a good trade agreement right now. And I want to take advantage of that. So while it's there, you never know. Everything changes so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Every four I, years I in the States, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. If people want to try these bars out or to learn more about you, where can they find you? Our website is the best place, www.gorpworld.com. That's where we are. Yeah, it's a really cool story. Us as farmers, you know, we grow the stuff and then, you know, we sell it and then we scratch our head at how it's sold in the stores and all the markups and, you know, how stuff gets on the shelf and that. So it it was really interesting to me to hear a little firsthand experience. Dietitians have become my best friend. It's the reason we've gotten into any professional sports teams like the Winnipeg Jets, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the... Blue Bombers, I'm trying to take credit for their win on Sunday because we delivered a big box of bars. And I'm sorry. No. Like, <laughs> no. I have I'll try to get no idea riders. who any of those teams oh. are. <laughs> well, it's CFL, so <laughs> we're under the radar up here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's been really encouraging to me because they are huge influencers and they seem to be getting behind my product. And to me, that's a really good sign. Well, that's awesome. And they're not asking about the GMO issue at all. It's not even a question. They're looking at the nutritional density of the product and its functionality, which is exactly the point. All right, Colleen, would you say, (laughs) would you say they don't care Uh about the labeling because dietitians know that GMOs are safe? Yeah, I would say that. The ones I've had experience with. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> well, Colleen Dick, you have a cool story and journey on the value added piece, the farming aspect. I love how you speak from the heart. Uh, you have such a unique and interesting perspective. And I love you know, the whole notion of taking risks and seeing where that journey will take you. So thank you so much for being on What the Farm podcast. And for all of those tuning in we hope you catch us next week bye bye thanks guys